0: Welcome to the 15th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer Katie here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at animalriotpress.com. Now on to the episode with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, Britt Canty.
1: Bum. We're here today with Britt Canty, writer of poetry and prose, and co-founder of Hip Lit. Britt's work has been published widely, and most recently she placed a piece with the Rumpus's Voices on Addiction column, which I read upon publication and then heard again a few days later. And it's uh, just really an incredible piece. And we'll get a, an excerpt or maybe the whole thing on that, you know, later in this episode. I guess we'll we'll play it by ear. We'll decide when the time comes. And today's brand of fuckery is brought to you by drinking wine. And not feeling guilty about it, despite our forthcoming discussion on alcoholism. Paradoxes. Writing. Good. Okay. Let's start with, uh, yeah, so you do a reading series too, so we are cut from yes. the same cloth. Let's talk about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Oh, um, that's nice. <laughs> yes, I'm really happy Is that to the be... first
1: person that's thanked us right off the bat? No? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm getting a shit look from our producers already. I I usually make it at least like 10 minutes in before that happens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's great to be here. So yes, I co-founded a literary event series Mm -hmm. called Hip Lit with two of my colleagues and former classmates from the new school, which is where we met. We met in the MFA creative writing program there. And we were attending a lot of readings together and we just started to come up with ideas for how we might run our own and kind of wanted to do something that would be a little bit different have a little bit more of a lively atmosphere kind of have a party following it that Uh, is
1: yeah that's exactly how uh katie (laughs) kind of describes what what we're going for when we're thinking about a launch party for the press we were just like should we have people read like yeah, a little bit, but let's just have a party,
0: <laughs> right? People I want mean, to get excited about readings. You know? It's the readings are obviously the heart of it and are mm-hmm. so important. But what we found is that so often people would just kind of disband after the readings, and there was all of this mist these missed connections or missed opportunity Mm -hmm. for people to actually connect and have a conversation, which could, you know, lead to various relationships, but also collaborations. And so we really wanted to try to create something that fostered that kind of community and connection beyond, you know, surrounding the readings, but, you know, really think about how we could make sure that people found a way to connect either before the reading or after. And so we... We have we often have themes that we we use to tie the events together and to make them a little bit maybe more accessible. What was your um, favorite one? That's a tough question. And we and we've been running for seven years now. This month actually marks our seven year anniversary. Ooh, wow! <laughs> so uh, it's it's crazy that it's yeah, been that that's long. amazing. Yeah. yeah, but so we've so it's. Difficult to say, but we did have one of my favorite events was probably our circus themed event, um, which Uh took place at a venue in, I guess, East Williamsburg called the Paper Box. And we featured Taya O'Brett, Ayad Oktar, and Jason Porter were our three readers. And then we also had an aerialist reading Sienna Sharp, reading poetry by Hafiz as she was. She had the poems actually right. in scrolls in her hair, and she would perform her, you know, acrobatics. Uh-huh. And as, she, like, midair, she would pull a scroll out of her hair and read from it, you know, wow. upside down or whatever. <laughs> and so she, you know, was one of our acts in addition to the, the readings. And then we also had you know, a band that like a, um, a band that followed that played music. So it kind of turned into a dance party. And then we had these literary side shows as well. So we had different booths set up that featured various like literary magazines, but they would have something going on, like a game or whatever. Oh, there was a tattoo, a fake tattoo. This, oh my God, this sounds uh. exactly, this sounds like
1: my bar mitzvah, (laughs) like straight up. This is incredible. (laughs) So
0: we used to have those kind of blowout themed events on a quarterly basis, uh-huh. and it, it started to feel like we were planning a wedding every time yeah. because there were just so many moving parts, so much that went into it, and as gratifying as it was, it was just, it was very, very time-consuming, so we kind of ended up having to scale back a bit. Was it, but- was it
1: just a... Uh- Alyssa, so was it four times a year or were those the four bigger times events? A year. Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah. Sometimes we would collaborate or maybe do you know, on other events in between or do like a smaller kind of salon style event in between. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, you know, our main focus was on those four extravaganzas a year. Yeah. And and then yeah, and kind of we like to have Our events in sort of like unlikely venues for a couple of years. We're having our events at B Electric Studios, which is a photo video production studio in Bushwick.
1: I was gonna ask if this was a moving uh, event, like you know, because we we have DTUT. It sounds like you guys pick a new location. I think
0: that's one of the things that makes Hiplet really unique is that we don't really, you know, we might have a home base for a couple of years, but then we're. We're sort of everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and then we we just had our our most recent event on Friday at the Coffee House Club in Manhattan, and then we are planning for our third year in a row to have a summer series at Nowadays, which is kind of on the Bushwick-Ridgewood border, and they just have this. Big sprawling outdoor space. It's kind of a Ooh. the perfect summertime oasis. So the the idea uh, behind that is that we're, we're we have backyard readings, and right. so it's just very chill. But you're just kind of enjoying summertime and chilling out, listening to readings. So that will be happening again this summer.
1: Yeah, that is awesome. We uh, we kind of have like an inside joke between us three where you've invited us to a couple of events like you know especially these salons and we're like oh my god we're so excited and then we can't go but one of these <laughs> days one of these days um there will
0: be more yeah
1: there mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. yeah that's that's awesome i um i i di- i actually did not know that you guys were moving I, honestly the theme thing too i'm mm-hmm. learning so much now
0: yeah so the theme <laughs> on friday was the ides march uh-huh. and so yeah we always kind of try to incorporate and we and it's multi it's multimedia or multi-genre. We, you know, books and readings are at the heart. But then we also try to feature, you know, a musician. Mm. One time we had this really big art installation. We always do a Brooklyn Book Festival bookend event, and so this was for one of those events. And this was one of one of the events that happened at the Electric Studios, which was this the cool thing about that space is since it was for production, it was kind of this blank canvas and they had a psych and everything it was all white walls. So almost like being in a gallery kind of warehouse space. Mm. And so it was really great and that it was so versatile. And so we had this really cool art installation that it worked with light and glass and it was just really created this very memorable atmosphere that we just wouldn't have otherwise had and so you know the readers are up there kind of surrounded by this installation so it just made it made, made it really much more interesting yeah <laughs> that that's incredible
1: yeah, yeah it's you, you guys are turning the reading series or like the salon whatever you want to call it it's like its own art form right you know like uh yeah i mean almost every reading i go to it's just introduce read next person let's get hammered and, you know, talk Mm -hmm. about shit, you know, but, Mm -hmm. and it's a great time, but yeah, I really like what you guys are doing. That sounds awesome.
0: Thanks. Well, likewise. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: so yeah, no, and we had the pleasure of attending an event at the church.
0: Oh, right. Which I don't know if
1: that was a special event or that was just a standard hip lit thing going on, but, uh, basically, yeah, you can talk about more where it was and everything, but I felt as, as, as a nice young Jewish boy, uh, being in a church for like maybe the second time in my life. It was quite a quite a blasphemous, a joyously blasphemous experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We um that was our third year in a row doing we love to partner, we love to collaborate with other series and other artists. And so that was a collaboration with Nancy Hightower who runs mm-hmm. a series out of St. Peter's Episcopal Church called St. Peter's Presents. So she wanted to and then it was also, a collaboration with Paige McGreevy, who runs Le Blue Literary Salon, and or as she would correct me, Le Bla, um, mm-hmm. and and that's sort me. of a um, a speakeasy style salon or kind of it's, it's a secret. It's always it takes place in a private home or residence, and you don't know the location until mm-hmm. you know a few days before. And this is what um, this
1: is what we've been trying to get in on, but we keep yeah, we, keep, we yes. keep missing. You we should keep definitely missing the ball, check yeah.
0: it out. <laughs> so, Paige of Les Blue and I have done a holiday salon for the past three years now, and then this year we also partnered with Nancy so that we could also we could use that space mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I was really excited about that when we had Garrett Conley who wrote Boy Erased, and that so that was especially impactful to have him reading in a church setting, mm-hmm. and the acoustics of a church are really great for mm-hmm. reading and musical performances. Yeah, there, and there
1: was a yeah, the band was really cool. They were kind of like a like an Explosions in the si- Sky kind of deal. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever heard of them, but uh, yeah, they had that mm-hmm. ethereal thing going on.
0: Yeah, very ethereal and just kind of creating these. These soundscapes—they're really that's Matt Ward and Lauren Gregory. They are an awesome duo, and I knew that they would. Their music would just sound especially uh, beautiful and haunting in a church setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also had Shoba Rao of Girls Burn Brighter and Andre Serpa poet whose book just came out from Alice James called Bicycle in a Ransacked City. And they, it was just a really great range of memoir fiction and poetry, which we also try to have you know, a range like that.
1: Cool. Very cool. So we met at the Reading Series of New York party.
0: Yes, we did. Yeah.
1: It was a part. It was a party. It was at uh, what was it at Andrews? Uh, one of one of the hosts. Yes. Yeah. Li- yes. Andrew hosts <laughs> Liars League. Yes. And he does. and and great. and so basically, uh, we kind of started getting together uh, for the reading for Rice Ricees. Am I saying it right, guys? Ricees, the refugee fundraiser yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. I think that's uses. right. Let's just <laughs> act like it's right. So basically, long story short, we uh, I say we like I did any work. Our producers did. A shit ton of work and got a lot of reading series involved and uh basically yeah fun passing around the basket to Mm -hmm. help raise money for uh refugees and it was a really great cause so then we kind of had like i guess it was like a wrap-up party or something and and Mm -hmm. we all kind of met up at andrews and that's where we met you and a lot of other cool people, but um, I remember we, we spent a long time talking that <laughs> night. We knew we had a kindred spirit. That's true. But uh, yeah, so now you're a part of the reading series of New York thing. Yes. Which is great, and like, I think we all really should work together. I think like as much as we have joked so far and really like these like salons, like the exclusive salons and stuff like that, or semi, whatever. I don't know how you want to call it. And they are exciting, because I like speakeasies and, mm-hmm. and furtiveness and illicit behavior. <laughs> uh, <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do think it's really cool that everyone's working together especially because it just gets more people involved and like I do think yeah. as as cool as like you know like a little secret thing is like like the exclusivity game is kind of a little bit on it's way out I think for the most part I don't know like I'm kind of generalizing but I do think like oh, some of the work that you're doing kind of I, I, we won't get into it too much but you're going to be a part of a startup that's even kind of set on opening doors between publishers and writers and, mm-hmm. like, getting people to set up events more easily, essentially. Right, right. Yeah. And,
0: yeah, and and also just to say that I think that creating the, yeah, Reading yeah. Series group. Uh-huh. Um, reading Series of New York. Yes, Reading we Series of New York. Thank yeah, you. We remember what <laughs> we are a part of. <laughs> it was such a great idea because – you know, we've all over the years connected with the, with each other, the various organizers of these different reading series going on throughout the city. And they're, they're, you know, it's a small world, but there are, there are quite a few of us and, and it's, you know, it's a labor of love and it's something we all feel passionately about. And it is, it is a lot of work and, you know, it can be difficult to sustain and it's nice to have that support system Uh and to have everyone come together and be able to reach out in a way that's easy and effective to just be like, hey, you know, I'm curious about your experience with, you know, this venue or does anyone have an author they'd like to recommend or, you know, just that kind of support is really invaluable because it can feel... I think it can feel a little bit isolating because you are doing it on your own. It's mm-hmm. not like you're a part of a company that has those kinds of resources. Mm-hmm. So everything is a hustle. And so the more you can kind of bring everyone together in that way, I think it's really just such an all-ships-rise situation. Exactly. And yeah. I just really, really appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone in the group appreciates it too. So, And then it was just very inspiring to see what coming together in that way could do the kind of impact it could have when when there when you pulled the the group fundraiser together among all of the series in the fall and Habitat did a Brooklyn Book Festival event then which supported the Raises cause and it was just Oh, I like that pronunciation. There you go. <laughs> it Raices. just really um <laughs> It was just, it was just really inspiring to see what we could do when we all banded together like mm-hmm. that and for, for something for a good cause. So yeah, I,
1: no, and, uh, and maybe I am a little too naive and a little bit on the outside and this isn't the full story, but to me, it seems like the, the collaboration between the hosts is really genuine it's like mm-hmm. there really isn't a competition thing going on. like everyone right. wants everyone to succeed and and that's important because without everyone succeeding, then we have a lesser community. you know, right, so right. the whole point is to really help us all out, you know, and to get more writers and more readers involved. and um, mm-hmm. one of one kind of a poignant moment was um, I think the reading series of New York get together, the Rices wrap up party. I don't know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Rices. I don't mm-hmm. know. I remember Andrew, this was before he had done his fundraising portion for his, he was about to host Okay. and he was like, Oh my God, like raise so much money. Like <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to raise like $5 or something, you know? <laughs> and he ended up raising a lot of money, right? Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Three, 300, 300 bucks. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that doesn't sound like a terribly, you know, much, but honestly, that's like, that's a that's a big deal, and you know every dollar counts. And like mm-hmm. and everyone and you know it's one of those things where clearly Andrew was like a little insecure about like what great work that Katie had done and all that stuff. But like you know it genuinely is a synergistic situation where it's like everyone's trying to help each other out. It doesn't matter how much you're doing or what you're doing, yeah. just to so like try and definitely.
0: Um, and I I know that I was really excited to go to that wrap-up party because I felt like we had all really worked together, but we hadn't really met each other yet. I hadn't met a lot of these people in person yet, even though I'd heard of their series or, you know, and always meant to go to that series or that one. And so to actually put faces to names or put faces to series and, Mm -hmm. you know, hang out in person Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that and just exchange ideas in person too about, you know, our experiences with running these series, kind of like the challenges and also the rewards of it was really meaningful and fun. And I was very excited to meet you both and, you know, had been corresponding with Katie. And so it was just, and seeing how, what an amazing job she was doing with organizing this effort. So it was really cool to finally meet you both. And then to now feel like I am connected to, and we can support each other and Mm -hmm. also through the, the, the group, the reading series of New York group. And so, yeah, I just couldn't feel, um, more grateful for all of that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I like what you said about the faces and names thing, because it sounds really cliche, but it's not, especially in the writing world because Something else happens when you actually meet someone. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, the really, I can't tell you how many times... I've met someone in person and been like, how do I know you? It's like, oh, no shit, the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it. It's like, and then I go, oh, yeah, like the, like, there's, like the writing community has an ability to be very strong online. But like, that's why, an, an, that, that's another reason why these reading series are so important is because they actually get people in a room together. right? Buying each other's books, you know, whatever, like just talking. It's like, I mean... I, I just can't tell you how many people I've heard read heard read aloud, and then I was like, oh, shit, that was really good. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have never been exposed to you. But even reading that excerpt by myself, like, you know, might have not resonated with me like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: Yeah, there is something really special about, you know, that in-person experience, and I think that, you know, that face-to-face kind of exchange and just, like, Oh, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Um, Oh, I just feel like in a world where, you know, we're inundated with everything's online, you know, whether it's just emailing or social media or whatever, that it's just that much more important and and memorable when you meet someone face-to-face and have that kind of exchange versus just, you know, online, online, online. And Mm -hmm. so it can just be really refreshing, but also more meaningful and long lasting, you know, to kind of have that experience. And I think that's really a huge, a huge impetus behind like what we're all doing here in creating these communities that are real, you know, in real life communities. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, (laughs) yeah.
1: And so, you know, for people in other cities do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what we're trying to work on too. But, uh, (laughs) But yeah, so that's enough optimism. I'm feeling yeah, I'm feeling not myself. So let's change, <laughs> we can get dark. Yeah, fine. let's change the subject. <laughs> so I I had uh, mentioned your piece that got published in the Rumpus, which I've been obsessed with ever since. And yeah, I don't know we'll we'll read a we'll read a little bit from it in a bit. But yeah, I just wanted to talk about it and I guess give a little introduction about like where it came from. You uh, we were talking a little bit before we got on the air about how. You had written so many different things and tried all these different projects that it seemed like all of these kind of not failed attempts, but like maybe false starts or abortive mm-hmm. projects. I don't know what you call them. You know, you know, I don't think there's any sort of like real failure in writing because then this is like a great example. It's because at some point you said you just sat down and all this just poured out, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah. So where I guess. Yeah. Where where were you when this began? (laughs) So (laughs) Or yeah, and give some background about what it's about and stuff, I guess, too. Sure. So the it's
0: a it's a personal essay and it's called One More Conversation. And it's about my relationship with my father, who struggled with alcoholism and mental illness and ultimately died from it. And he passed away a little over six years ago. And I've been, I mean, a lot of my writing has been driven by experiences I've had growing up with this, but also ever since he, he passed, I have been trying to, you know, grapple with what all of it meant and distill it on the page and, and, you know, have it have it mean something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but it's, you know, it's obviously, it's a lot to process. And sometimes, as I I was mentioning earlier, you know, it just takes time, you know, can just take time and Mm -hmm. and having it brew for a while. And, you know, so I was taking, I've been taking stabs at this essay for a long time and just would hit a wall, not really know how to, mainly not really know how to finish it, you know, Mm -hmm. and or what I was trying to say, like ultimately try to say. And so finally it just kind of clicked in sort of an aha moment where I sat down over the summer and it just sort of poured out of me almost completely whole. And that's a rare moment for a writer, as you know. Um, But I think that... That was the product of having thought about it for so long and attempted to write this thing for so long. And mm-hmm. finally, just through enough thinking, attempting life experiences, I was able to have it come out, yeah, there's a,
1: there's a weird paradox there about getting distance from it. Mm-hmm. and yet, and in this other way, processing it to the to a place where you can get closer to it without. Mm-hmm it getting distorted I guess or getting like shocked by it like you mm-hmm. know like electrocuted yeah and and another thing that the you're you're kind of the origin story for this piece it's funny because I had a very similar aha with a personal essay that I wrote mm-hmm. about going to psychoanalysis and you know being a child of deaf adults and stuff mm-hmm. and I, I wonder if there's something about like personal narratives. It's mm-hmm. like you are so close to it that like you just finally like maybe break down this wall and it's like, all right, mm-hmm. I got it. But I also remember it was because I had also had had an argument with my friend who was calling me a shitty writer. <laughs> and I was like, fuck this guy. You're like, well, you're a shitty friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so basically, yeah, like that night, I think I was like kind of stoned too. I was like, "Fuck this! I'm writing this." <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, should we should we do should we do like an earlier reading and then talk about it? I think that's an interesting idea. Sure. Yeah, I mean that'll that would allow us to talk about it more, you know, f- more freely.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna I'm going to read from the essay again. This is this is you can find this online at The Rumpus, and it's also worth looking at online because Dolan Morgan, who's a brilliant writer and illustrator. Created some really beautiful original artwork for this piece. So, yeah, he's, he's great. I, yeah, I,
1: uh, Katie actually just uh, asked him for a blurb for my novel. Oh, awesome! I, I, I really liked his book, which was like actually speaking of books that are like short stories slash nonfiction. That's one of them. That mm-hmm. I, I, like that's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, but Dolan's great. Yeah, everyone should check him out. He has yes, a story about sure. a he has a story about like a woman getting like fucked by a giant or something yeah that's like what it's about we can cut we can (laughs) i believe it it. we can cut it if i'm wrong but like yeah it's hilarious it's incredible he read it out loud i was like this is like the greatest thing yeah he's
0: he's an excellent reader as well (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's enough
1: that's enough on that this is your story
0: (laughs) so one more conversation My father died alone at dawn on a Sunday in December. He was 57 and had been living with his parents in his childhood home in Tucson, Arizona. His father went to wake him for breakfast and found him on the floor, gone. That Friday night before, my father had sent me a slew of texts. To someone else, these messages would have been alarming. Someone else would have sought help, notified all of the right people. Someone else would have put down her martini, excused herself from her friends, and walked out of that bar in Brooklyn. But I wasn't someone else. I was his eldest child, now 27 years old, who had long become accustomed to the threats he made on his life. Without breaking conversation with my friends, I skimmed my father's pleading messages. He said I was the only one who would still speak to him. He went on about how everyone wanted him dead, so he would give them what they wanted. I put my phone back in my purse. I thought, he must be drinking again, and he knows my rule. I won't talk to him when he's drunk. I remember feeling proud of myself for creating and sticking to these boundaries, for finally figuring out a way to have a relationship with my father while still protecting myself. When I received the news on Monday morning, I was at work, an industrial open office space in Manhattan with all of the trappings of a startup media company, so there was nowhere to hide when I opened an email from my father's sister. I expected her message to be about the holidays, since there had been talk of my father and my grandparents making the trip from Tucson to my aunt's house in upstate New York. Instead, Paul has died. I'm in shock. Do you already know? I stared at the keyboard, searching for an answer. No, I hadn't known But I had imagined receiving this news so many times in anticipation that it seemed as though I'd known for decades. He had prepared us well. I was eight years old when I first witnessed my father threatening to take his life. It was nighttime. I was hiding under my bunk bed with my younger brother and sister. The bedroom door was cracked, and we could see my father pacing the hallway outside the room. He held a gun to his head as he walked back and forth, raving about how he wanted to kill us and then himself. I was terrified that he might push the door open and find us huddled beneath the bed. I tried not to breathe, not to make a single sound that could give us away. My mother called the police and we were rushed to the neighbor's house while he was arrested. Many more arrests, along with hospitalizations and other interventions, followed. We moved from Texas to Virginia to New Jersey to South Carolina in a fit of fresh starts, each of which spiraled out of control, delivering us back into the same old chaos. The police came to know us wherever we moved, sometimes dropping by unannounced just to check in. Of course, there were good times, too, glimmers of what life would be like if my father could stay sober. During those lucid patches, he was present and engaged. He he played the guitar with remarkable energy and mastery, challenged us to games of ping pong, assisted me with my homework and ballet training, and took us for bike rides and hikes in the woods. He consumed books and films and music, and he shone with the sort of intelligence and humor that drew people to him. He ascended fast in his career as a lawyer in Dallas, becoming one of the firm's youngest and brightest players. These moments of happiness and stability inspired hope in me, but as time went on, they began to evoke a sense of dread. I became increasingly aware that it wouldn't last for long because the light days were always chased by the dark ones. When I was 14, my parents separated. Even though my mother said she was done, she would still stop by his apartment to check on him, particularly when she suspected he might be on the brink of a drinking binge. On one of these visits, my mother and I showed up at his door with a few bags of groceries. He greeted us with bloodshot eyes, matted hair, and disheveled clothes. There were heaps of crushed Budweiser cans on the floor and half-full jugs of vodka and orange juice on the counters. The stagnant air was foul, nauseating. He grabbed the carton of milk from one of our grocery bags and began to shout about how he didn't want this shit. He wanted money. Then he turned and chucked the carton in our direction. It hit the wall beside us and exploded, milk spewing everywhere. We hurried out of the apartment and he followed us into the parking lot, carrying on about how we didn't give a fuck about him. Everyone would be better off without him. Before we could pull away in my mother's car, he threw his body onto the asphalt behind the back tires. He wouldn't move, he said, until we gave him money. Passers-by with babies in strollers and dogs on leashes stopped to stare. My mother dropped a couple of twenties out the window and drove off as soon as he stood to gather the bills. After the divorce, my father made his final move from Charleston to Los Angeles. He wanted to be closer to his parents and to pursue his dream of writing movie scripts. I welcomed the sudden distance between us. By then, I harbored so much anger and resentment, blaming him for all of the years of instability. I hated having to be the new kid in class again and again. I hated packing and unpacking the police calls, the screaming fights and slamming doors, and the prevailing feelings of fear and shame which I kept hidden behind my smile and honor roll grades. How many nights had I lain in bed and prayed for my father's death to come fast and set us free? At last, that prayer seemed closer than ever to fulfillment, with over 2,000 miles of land splitting us apart. My father continued to reach out to my siblings and me, but his communication was always sporadic and dependent on his sobriety and mental state. We couldn't rely on him to be there for anything important, no matter how many times he promised he wouldn't miss my blank for the world. You can fill in the blank with 16th birthday, cross-country state championship, high school graduation, and so on. He missed it. In reaction, I either dismissed his phone calls or, if I did answer, punished him with curt one-word responses to his questions. Whenever he tried to forge a connection, I evaded his efforts and took a vengeful pleasure in further depriving him of any link between us. Our common interests and strengths were difficult to ignore, though. One of his hobbies was long-distance cycling, while one of mine was long-distance running. Both of us had a propensity for language. I excelled in my Spanish and English courses as he once had in his. He had taken his studies to Madrid, and I ended up in Seville for a semester in college. We shared a love of poetry and each possessed writing aspirations. No matter how much I said I would never be like my father, I couldn't avoid these similarities. Far from innocuous, they seemed threatening and fueled my ill feelings toward him. It wasn't until I moved to New York City to attend graduate school that my anger began to buckle, giving way to an undeniable recognition of my own humanity in his. As an adult in my early 20s, I started to better understand the power of vices and the nuances in relationships, how love and destruction tended to call the same places home. One day, I answered his phone call and decided to ask him some candid questions. What did it feel like to be an alcoholic, to struggle with bipolar disorder? Why couldn't he take his medication and stop drinking for his family's sake, if not his own? Even though it was painful, I pushed myself to listen, not as his betrayed daughter, but as a fellow human being. My father spoke about the existence of two Pauls, Paul and anti-Paul. He explained that anti-Paul wanted to ruin Paul, and every day he was struggling to keep Paul alive and well, safe from the destructive hands of anti-Paul. These conversations, This conversation led to more conversations. Eventually, I found myself opening up and truly enjoying these phone calls. It was almost like reconnecting with an old friend. I sometimes even shared my writing with him, and he would respond with thoughtful and astute feedback reminiscent of when he critiqued my book reports in middle school. Through these exchanges, my compassion for my father began to take root and grow until one day I realized that compassion had fully replaced the anger I'd dragged around with me for so many years. I felt liberated, more whole. As he got older, anti-Paul seemed to gain more power. His stints of sobriety between relapses narrowed, and his body was losing its resiliency His binges would sometimes trigger seizures, and he developed an arrhythmia in his heart from chronic drinking. I was relieved whenever he was arrested, he would be safer, or at least sober, behind bars. His longest period of sobriety was his most extensive time in prison, two years reduced from a five-year sentence for a felony resulting from an accumulation of DUIs. He wrote me long letters from jail. Mostly about the books he was reading, the memoir he was writing, and the English classes he was teaching, which made him popular among the inmates. I hoped those two years would build a strong foundation of sobriety, making it easier for him to continue his recovery when released. I was getting married, and I wanted him to be there for the wedding, but he relapsed and ended up back in jail. Even though I was disappointed, I had stopped getting upset with him for not being able to transform into the kind of father I wanted him to be. Instead, I recognized he was suffering, trying to survive each day. I knew there wasn't much time left before anti-Paul would take Paul away forever. And yet, when the news at last arrived, it was incomprehensible. My hands shook as I typed, What? in response to my aunt's email. Somehow an average workday carried on around me. Everyone was typing at their desks, faces obscured by screens, headphones and ears, and cups of coffee on hand. I told my boss I had to deal with a family emergency and then went outside to call my father. Finding a bench in a nearby park, I thought, just one more conversation, please. The voicemail recording picked up. His voice sounded as enthusiastic and full of life as ever. My chest swelled with something like hope. Then it beeped. Dad, I cried. Dad, I'm here. I cried and cried. Come back. Once, as a girl, I'd had the wind knocked out of me when I fell from a magnolia tree and landed on my stomach. Emptied of air, I'd remained sprawled on those knotted roots for what seemed like hours. That's how I felt again then, a child suddenly fallen, helpless, unable even to breathe. He was drinking when he sent those desperate texts on that Friday night before, and he'd continued drinking until his heart gave out. The answer to my aunt's question was that I did already know. I knew in the way that everyone who knew him knew. We all knew he was sick. Sitting on that bench, I wondered something I've since wondered again and again. If I had responded to his messages that night, could I have somehow saved him? No, I never held the cure. No one did. Even if he'd survived then, there would have been a next time and a next. This email had been bound to come one day. A couple of years earlier, I had a vivid dream about my father. I still remember. There were two of him, one good and one bad. I was running through the woods trying to escape from the bad father who ran after me with a gun. It was dark except for the pale light of a crescent moon. The bad father started shooting at me. Bullets splintered the air and loud cracks echoing all around. As his footsteps advanced, the good father swept me into his arms and shot the bad one dead. Only in the woods of my subconscious could Paul conquer anti-Paul, and it was in that same unawake place where I'd held onto the possibility of Paul's triumph and the redemption of our relationship as a daughter who still wanted her father to rescue her from the bad guy, even if the bad guy was him. This latent longing didn't fully come into my awareness until he was gone, and it surprised and devastated me. His death made any further possibilities for Paul, for us, impossible. That was it. There wouldn't be another opportunity for the connection and understanding I'd sought as an adult and to some extent achieved. Our newfound kinship was a fledgling drowned before it could take to the skies, the death of what never really was. Perhaps its wings were too bruised to ever soar anyway, but in spite of everything I knew— I had believed. Thank you for listening.
1: <laughs> awesome. That's the that's kind of like the that's the second time I've heard it, and I've already read it once too. So,
0: well, thank it, you so
1: much oh, for oh, being so oh no, supportive. Oh no, our princess is barking. Something I totally forgot to mention. So I'm glad you read that. Is uh I don't know if you saw, but. I don't know if I invited you to my stupid Facebook writers page.
0: I think I'm on it. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So, um, I I posted your your piece on there.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah,
1: and someone—I'll just leave them unnamed. They okay. They responded and said I really relate to the Paul anti-Paul thing, mm. and not because they've struggled with addiction, but because they uh, they had a serious. Brain injury of some sort. I haven't, I haven't heard about it much. Mm -hmm. And they said that, like, you know, the doctor said that they probably wouldn't recover. Blah blah blah. But like, you know, going back and forth. Coincidentally, they also are. They have a startup. I think it's a nonprofit. But basically, it's like how to easily, more easily get a. I think Narcan. That's the. Mm -hmm. That's like the. That like blocks opioids i think it's i think it's narcan but yeah it's really cool just like you know i put that up there and someone just like really spoke to them and that's uh, very cool and they're they're, you know obviously then they also have this uh this interest in addictions and and you know i don't know it seems like uh more than a coincidence to me just kind of like that mindset and how it works so our challenge was to drink wine and not feel guilty (laughs) and something we were talking about before we got on the air was there's this fear that like you can feel like oh i'm I'm also like my parent, mm-hmm. so I might become like them and like you know that fear is kind of nagging. So I guess do you do you share that at all or how do you view it?
0: Absolutely. I think that when you have had a parent who struggles with addiction, it's you know it's so it's difficult to I don't know not not be scared that you won't sort of become like them in mm-hmm. in some ways and in in some bad ways and that's something that I definitely struggled with with my father of, you know, we did have all of these similarities, very similar interests and sort of similar personalities and people would remark on that and I I, I couldn't even take, you know, I, I, I used to even take like a compliment, you know, something positive they would say about my dad that, you know, I might have a similar trait that would be that would feel threatening to me because i didn't want to be like him at all mm. and even in the even in the positive ways because i was so fearful of becoming like him and mm-hmm. even something that was a good thing about him felt threatening to me well. and i wanted to dissociate myself from him completely mm. and because of because of that fear hmm. and wow. so i think that's a very powerful thing to have to grapple with you know yeah it just took me a long time to kind of come around to accepting you know him in 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 all ways and to accepting the fact that I am like him in in a lot of ways but fortunately I at least so far have avoided the more the more challenging things that he had to deal with
1: how did you learn to accept those things was it like in your essay I would I would deduce that it was from talking to him more Mm-hmm. And when you got older, and just and understanding, just, yeah, that, like, becoming
0: you know, older, you know, as a child, everything seems very black and white. Yeah, you know, and as you get older, it's like you, you can
1: choose not to do this, and you're fucking my life oh, Exactly, why would you do this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't uh-huh.
0: understand why do you keep doing this thing uh-huh. that keeps ruining our lives, uh-huh. and it's really difficult to understand as a kid, and uh, and then it's difficult to 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 let go of the anger, even as you become an adult, to let go of the anger and resentment surrounding Mm -hmm. all of that and just feeling like you didn't have the kind of father or parent that you wanted to have and how much that affected or, or traumatized you can just obviously have really lasting effects. And so to just, I guess, I ultimately was able to, find, you know, compassion for him and that allowed me to let go of the anger I had carried for so long and resentment toward him. And I just sort of let go was able to finally let go of a lot of that. And that allowed me to then also accept him kind of as my as my father and not and 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 in a way, I think too when you I think at least for me, you know, kind of having this this loathing toward one of my parents, it is reflected back at you. So those things about you it, you hate about yourself. Mm-hmm, so I mm-hmm. was self-hating because, it, at least in part, because I hated him, and so therefore I hated myself. You know, kind of. Just by, <laughs> I don't know that by, by, by nature of coming from um, him, like, right, y- right. Like yeah, okay. and so that was kind of there, even if it was unacknowledged you know and so I think when I was able to accept him I was also able to accept myself Mm. you know and love myself more and so that was an important step for me in in my journey with all of this Mm. and then being able to then say I accept him I accept myself but also I am you know not going to I'm going to learn from from everything that I've experienced with him. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm, I'm going to be aware of, you're kind of on high alert and high awareness. I think when you have gone through things like that and you are so sensitive to maybe not wanting to go down that route that, you know, you, uh, yeah, you I'm,
1: I'm, I'm definitely sure you are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: that it's, and, and to some extent, that's good you know you have that awareness you Uh want to have that awareness yeah I I think it is
1: because um you know especially considering that like there is like a predisposition like I Mm -hmm. think the only thing you can combat the only way you can combat that is through awareness um Mm -hmm. and that that kind of leads me to my my big question is like when you first decided to have a drink Mm-hmm. like what was going through your mind, like to this day, what's going through your mind? Like, you know, cause you've gotten this far and mm-hmm. like, you feel pretty good about yourself, you know? I mean, the, it has, have you built a level of like trust in yourself? Is there like a good base or I guess like start with like when, when you first did drink, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I was, I, for the most part, I didn't drink in high school, but I think that there was, there was a party I was at where I had, you know, like, Mike's Hard Lemonade or something (laughs) like that. And I was just felt so sort of guilty about it and scared of it, you know. But Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really actually drink until college, I would say. And I don't know. I just had dissociated myself so much from my father at that point that I was, like, not acknowledging that fear that was there. That fear was there, but I just kind of, I wasn't thinking about it. I was like, hmm. I'm not him. He's not related to me, oh, you I know? See. And so I just had compartmentalized it so much hmm. at that point that it was under the surface, but I was not acknowledging the fear that I had about that. And so, so you
1: did at some point.
0: So, so yeah. So in college I, I drank like a normal college you know, a student, out, which is a lot. Which can be a, quite lot. a lot, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that can blur the lines. <laughs> and then I think once I graduated from college and kind of became more of an adult, I started to confront more. And that's also when I started to do more writing, because that's when I moved to New York and mm. went to the new school. And so I was writing more. So that kind of forces you into reflecting on things in your life in on a deeper level mm-hmm. and so i think at that point i started to kind of look in more inward look more deeply at what i had experienced and you know all of this stuff that i had maybe been pushing aside not wanting to look at not wanting to face mm-hmm. um, started to come to the surface and
1: do you think it was a choice or do you think it a little bit of both or like where the, obviously writing is, I guess I, I should add some context to that question because what, what's, what piques my interest about that is just today I've, I was working on an interview, like, you know, some questions that I was asked and like, one of the questions was what, what does, what do your characters teach you that like, like test you for or like whatever. And like the first thing that came to me was like, uh, on like self-honesty and awareness really. You know, because mm-hmm. when I first started writing, it was like, oh, I, I, I'm i very aware now that when I first started writing, a lot of it was to flex my intellectual and like, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. like bullshit, you know. Uh, it You know, I mean, a lot of the writers I like write with some of that effect, but like, you know, they being vulnerable is just mm-hmm. extremely hard, especially when you're young. So like, you know, going back to you saying, oh, I needed to process this. And then at one moment, it just like came out, mm-hmm. you know, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. But did you see it as a perfect like time in your life or like what can you even navigate like exactly what so, it was that allowed you to start saying, oh, wow, I'm actually like scared as shit about this. Like, you know, this is like a big fear of mine.
0: So actually my thesis advisor in grad school is this an author, Joyce Johnson, who is a writer of the Beat Generation. And she – she, so she was reading my work at that time, and I remember that she said to me, you know, Britt, you can't you, – because that's when I really started to delve into writing about my father and my relationship with him – And I remember her saying, you're just painting him as a monster and you Mm -hmm. can't, you basically like, that's not good writing. Like Mm -hmm. you need to have more nuance, but that's how I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time I was still so angry and I did think of him as this monster. And it was true to you. And yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, that Uh was my, what I was feeling at the time. But she kind of was basically saying to me, like, you need to, it obviously it's, great to write down thing to always be kind of like writing things down. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, actually trying to publish something at that point in time, she just felt like I had not processed that, you know, relationship and those experiences enough to be able to write about it in a way that is like nuanced, you know, that has a kind of nuance that you, that you want from, from personal writing like that. And I was too, it was too, one-sided, you know. I was kind of. I was too upset. It's I was almost too like angry. Ex- it's
1: almost extremist. Like you know, it's kind of like yeah. a microcosm of like, like I'm like I just hate this person. You right. Know? And what, and when that-
0: and when the writing is coming from kind of like I think her point was just like when it's coming from this sort of hateful place, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's, you know, it's just not going to have the kind of nuance as like okay, you went through that and then you know. Not that you necessarily have to come to this like perfect place of compassion, but just kind of like
1: objectivity, something, yeah, yeah,
0: a little bit beyond that, or just not just this pure like anger, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. So I think that I didn't really understand at the time what she meant because I couldn't I couldn't understand that at the time, and then and then it was interesting because she also had me. Hired me to be her research assistant to this biography of Jack Kerouac that she wrote called The Voices All. So we would spend all this time going through the Kerouac archives at the Berg and mm-hmm. the New York Public Library. And, you know, Kerouac was this really prolific writer. And so there are all of these just, you know, notebooks and drafts of manuscripts in the archives. And going through those was so interesting. And I really, going into it, didn't know that much about Kerouac. And then I was suddenly like in his head, you know, reading his journals that are very personal. And I started to get kind of attached to this person Mm -hmm. and started to feel invested in him and, and his life, even though, you know, obviously he's not alive. But like at the time, I felt like I was really invested in what was going on, what's going to happen, and how is he dealing with this? And then I... I remember, uh, you know, probably a year into this research project, Joyce asked me to go see this, this documentary about Kerouac, and I hadn't seen Kerouac kind of come to life on the screen before, you know, with just his physical, you know, self and speaking and that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. I suddenly went from just reading, like being in his mind in the journals, reading his journals to seeing him on the screen. And it was this like really powerful thing because I had felt so kind of invested in this person. Mm -hmm. And I just, it wasn't meant to be like a sad documentary, but I just started, like I was sobbing the whole Mm -hmm. time and it was just extremely powerful. And I remember getting into the cab with Joyce afterward. And I said, I don't know why I just, you know, was crying so much. Like I was just it just struck me in such a way and I'm just, you know, reeling from it and I Mm -hmm. don't know why I reacted that way. And she said because she said something like, Because he reminds you of your father. Mm -hmm. Like she knew what was going on, you know, before I kind of did, because she's an old, wise, and amazing woman and writer, but she saw from my own writing, from you know, what I was experiencing with reading these archives that Like because a lot of what he wrote about had to do with like alcohol and addiction and, Mm -hmm. you know, and there were all of these parallels and even just kind of his like personality had this, had a lot of similarities to my father. and Just
1: the fact of it was like the reverse of your father in a way. It's like you're getting right inside his mind Mm -hmm. with all this stuff and then you see him and it's like. Oh uh, yeah, my dad has a body too, and then like inside that body is this like whole world. Exactly, you know? it really humanized
0: yeah. it. Really humanized yeah. him, and like what happened it, you know? was that what I realized is I was like, oh my gosh, I had developed like an understanding and compassion for Kerouac, and then then I was able to transfer mm-hmm. that compassion and understanding onto my father, mm-hmm. and it was it was crazy how that worked. But I was actually able to take that and just like. Then transfer it or project it over onto my dad. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I, that was sort of like a revelation for me and a, and a pivotal point in my relationship with my dad. That was the point at which I was able to start asking him those questions and actually having real conversations with him. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything.
1: Wow. Wow. And you said when you were doing this project, was this still undergrad? I'm sorry, I forgot. What this was grad, this, this was, was grad school. This was grad school. This doing in my new, MFA in the new, new York. School. Yeah, yeah. The new
0: school. And I mean, it's it just sort of a like also kind of a testament to the power of language and of words because right. because I was able to read this this intimate experience like that of his that had to do with these same things that like my father was struggling with and that I was struggling with as as well in terms of just dealing with having a father like that, it was it changed my entire perspective on on him and then was then able to transform our relationship. And that is a really, a really pretty powerful thing, you know, to kind of like say about what language can do and right. what writing That's can exactly do. That's you exactly know what I mean? was just thinking. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm always looking for ways to <laughs> promote the craft. So yeah, I don't know. This is a pretty direct question, but, you know, I have I have addiction in my family, too, but it's a lot of – I don't see it very much for a lot of reasons that I won't go into. Um, I mean, for, I'll give one example. Like, my grandma on my mom's side died before I was born, and, you know, for various reasons. I just haven't seen it. But, like, what was the hardest thing? Mm. Like, I, that's – I almost hate the question I just asked, but I also really <laughs> want to ask it, you know, because no, it, it's it. so, it's so, it's so big. It's like really global, you know?
0: I think the hardest thing to deal with is just, you know, it's the, I think as a kid, it's the, it's the in the instability, the, the chaos, the kind of not knowing what's going to happen, not feeling secure, not feeling like the people who are supposed to be like the, when you're your father who's supposed to, you know, who you want to be this kind of rock and like create this sort of foundation for you, someone who you feel like you can always rely on and trust that actually you can't trust them and they Mm -hmm. continually can continue to betray you, break promises over and over and over again. I mean, he would always, he was very effusive in all of his feelings. So, you know, it'd be like, I love you so much. I'm going to do everything I can to get better and make this better. Mm-hmm. But then inevitably, you know, things would go awry again. Catastrophe would ensue. And then he would be incredibly wow, wow. like Rosetta, stop. <laughs> uh-uh. And then he would be incredibly apologetic, you know, crying, hugging you. I'm so sorry, you know, and that kind of roller coaster of just emotion and not, and not. Knowing what is going to happen and not feeling like you can really trust what this person what, what your own father is telling you and as a kid, when mm-hmm. that person is like creating your life, you know, you can't sort I mean I guess you could run away, but you well, know no just- <laughs> one, one of the things
1: I was thinking was uh, creating your worldview. I'm just curious as to how much you extrapolate that to like, especially when you're a kid and you're very impressionable, like how much do you just extrapolate that to everything or something, you know?
0: Right, you know, it obviously creates trust issues. It's, you know, can be difficult to trust people when you've gone Mm. through something like that. And so, you know, I think that was probably the hardest thing and then, you know, and just also, and then moving into adulthood, there were times when I wasn't speaking to him, but then when I did open up more to him and I set those kind of boundaries that I mentioned, in the piece, you know, that was hard because it was just how much do I try to – how how involved do I get, you know, and when I know that he's struggling or something like that, how involved do, do I get? How much do I check in? How much mm-hmm. do I – that sort of thing. I think on the once you become an adult, you know, then you're sort of dealing with that. And, you know, he would call me in the middle of the night and tell me that he was about to slit his wrists, you know, and that mm-hmm. was just – Kind of, and that's why in the piece I'm like, oh, here here are like more messages from dad, you know, talking, threatening all kinds of things. And you start to become a little bit numb to it or a little bit like, okay, can't really take that seriously. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, but then when it actually happens, then, you know, of course you're like, oh my gosh, I should have done something and mm-hmm. you feel all kinds of guilt. But it, so it's, you know, trying to navigate how much do you, get involved? How much do you help? How much do you stand back? Like what those boundaries are, trying to figure them out and, and accept them. And it's never going to feel, you know, it's never going to be ideal as long as that person is, you know, struggling with those things. So it's, (laughs) yeah it's hard yeah Yeah,
1: that's a lot are you pretty ambivalent about right because you know we were before we got on the air we were talking about how you had tried your hand at a few long form Mm -hmm. projects and like nothing had really stuck yet and Mm -hmm. and kind of how that brought you to this essay do you feel like ambivalent about writing something about whether it's fiction nonfiction, what have you about this experience or addiction or alcoholism in general or are you kind of just do you feel Confident that you know you don't want to, or you do, you know.
0: So, I think I don't know when I was younger, maybe in high school or college, I read The Glass Castle and The Liars' Club, and those were two memoirs that really, you know, I had at the time. I had never read anything like them, and are they addiction memoirs? Yeah. Okay, I'm um, so very
1: surprised I haven't read those because I, I went through a phase where I was like obsessed with those when I was a kid too.
0: Yeah, or you know, it's been. It's been many years, but they're very – They're yes, I highly recommend both of them. But yeah. they kind of – or just – I don't know if – well, one of them definitely, the Glass Castle involves mental illness and mm-hmm. I think addiction. And then I think Liars Club is also – there is addiction. But it's just kind of overall kind of dysfunctional home life mm-hmm. and the struggles with that and – those both really um, affected me, even maybe kind of, I think, inspired me to want to write more about my experiences and to even, like, I, I remember at the time thinking, I'm going to write a memoir like this, mm-hmm. and then, you know, kind of realize how challenging that would actually be. But um, mm-hmm. but I think that's that has stayed with me, and for a long time I did think I would write a full-length memoir, but I... And so that's something I still think about, but then I started to get into writing fiction and have had a couple of short stories out. They're pretty autobiographical, so it's still, I think I stick in the realm of nonfiction for the most part, mm-hmm. but I but everything I write I feel like is, so far has been pretty driven by these experiences from childhood, maybe someday I will uh, have other material to explore. But yeah, I, I, I'm kind of, I tend to, my writing tends to obsess over that in different ways, whatever form it takes, whether it's poetry or short fiction or essay. So I don't know, I'm just kind of open to seeing where it all takes me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No,
1: I mean, my very, uh, personal uninformed opinion (laughs) being outside of your head (laughs) i mean it does sound like you might even need to write about that you know Mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's a very important experience i think to share with the world i think too many people go through it and not only that a lot of people experience it themselves like you know whether Mm -hmm. they're the addict or the you know, the fan, the satellite member or whatnot. Yeah. I, I, I think you, I think you'd write something really, really good.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. I really appreciate all of the support and, and having, and, and having this essay out there at last after so many years of trying to write it has been such a relief, but also so gratifying in, you know, just the number of responses I've, I've received where it's really resonated with people and mm-hmm. In a number of different ways, and that has been really encouraging for me as a writer and inspiring because you know it does make me feel like okay, maybe I should write more of this. You know, if it is because I think ultimately, at least what I strive for as a writer is to you know inspire or just like have people connect with the writing in a way where they don't feel alone in something Mm -hmm. or they feel. Like someone understands something and that it's also illuminating in some way where that reader can hopefully feel like, oh, this this opens up something kind of like what I was mentioning about, just the power of language and 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 story and sharing personal stories like that is that it can really help to shape, hopefully in a positive way, how people might then view their own lives or experiences and kind of create that shift you know in your perspective that you wouldn't have otherwise maybe yeah had
1: that's why i think it's really important you know a lot of people that uh we've talked to whether on here or not have talked about oh well you know my experience is very well represented you know uh, we had we had someone on here earlier who's a really great writer and she just started writing oh we were talking about it's annie you know we Mm -hmm. were talking yeah and you know That's the thing. People are going to continue going through this, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's why Mm -hmm. it's really important to keep sharing it because it's not something we've figured out yet. (laughs) That's for damn sure. Right. So, you
0: know, know, it never, you know, death and love and life and, you know, it's not, it's not getting old because we're all continuing to experience all of Mm -hmm. these things over and over again. And so it's just like, it's the human condition and it doesn't, I don't know, it's it's just what we're and, all dealing with. So. And
1: and, everyone, and everyone's perspective like really does shed light, mm-hmm, you know, or else mm-hmm. we wouldn't like keep, you know. I mean, as soon as I read your essay, I didn't even know about the Rumpus' uh, Voices on Addictions column. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I read yours, I was like, oh, I read another one. And I read another yeah. one. And I was like, oh, shit, these, these are good, you know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, just to reiterate yeah, the Voices on Addiction column, the editor of that is Kelly Thompson. And yeah, she does a really great job of – Creating pieces for that. So if you are interested in reading more pieces about that d- surround addiction, that is definitely mm-hmm. the place to go.
1: I even... Uh, uh, I even was thinking about trying to write one. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Thank
0: you so much for having me on again.
1: Yeah. It's been a pleasure. No, this is great.
0: Okay. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at animal riot press or Facebook and Instagram under the same name or through our website, animal This has been the 15th episode of the Animal Riot podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Britt Canty. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals.
1: It's the burn bombing on your all and getting gully as the burn I don't know much about lee